thought I would share this uh, short story by Hemingway because he was often at his best when writing about Christmas. This is one of his most famous journalistic pieces called Christmas at the Roof of the World, which he wrote as a special for the Toronto Star in 1923. He was just 24 years old when he wrote this. He was on a Christmas skiing holiday in Switzerland with his wife, Hadley, and an army buddy he called Chink. I like the way he uses simple colors to describe the magical Alpine Christmas. While it was still dark, Ida, the little German maid, came in and lit the fire in the big porcelain stove, and the burning pine wood roared up in the chimney. Out the window, the lake lay steel gray far down below, with the snow-covered mountains bulking jagged beyond it. And far away beyond it, the massive tooth of the Dante Dimiti, beginning to lighten with the first touch of morning. It was so cold outside, the air felt like something alive as I drew a deep breath. You could swallow the air like a drink of cold water. I reached up with a boot and banged on the ceiling. Hey, Chink, it's Christmas. Hooray, came Chink's voice down from the little room under the roof of the chalet. Hadley was up in a warm woolen dressing robe with the heavy goat's wool skiing socks. Chink knocked at the door. Merry Christmas, my infants, he grinned. We wore the early morning garb of big woolly dressing robes and thick socks that made us all look like some monastic order. In the breakfast room, we could hear the stove roaring and crackling. Hadley opened the door. Against the tall white porcelain stove hung the three long skiing stockings, bulging and swollen with strange lumps and bulges. Around the foot of the stove were piled boxes. Two new shiny pairs of ash skis lay alongside the stove, too tall to stand in the long ceiling chalet room. For a week... We had each been making mysterious trips to the Swiss town below on the lake. Hadley and I, Chink and I, and Hadley and Chink, returning after dark with strange boxes and bundles that were concealed in various parts of the chalet. Finally, we each had to make a trip alone. That was yesterday. Then last night we had taken turns on the stockings, each pledged not to sleuth. Chink had spent every Christmas here since 1914 in the Army. He was our best friend. For the first time in years, it seemed like Christmas to all of us. We ate breakfast in the old, untasting, gulping, early morning Christmas way, unpacked the stockings down to the candy mouse in the toe, each made a pile of our things for future gloating. From breakfast, we rushed into our clothes and tore down the icy road in the glory of the blue-white, glistening alpine morning. The train was just pulling out. Chink and I shot the skis into the baggage car, and we all three swung aboard. All Switzerland was on the move. Skiing parties, men, women, boys, and girls taking the train up the mountain, wearing their tight-fitting blue caps. The girls all in riding breeches and shouting and calling out to one another, platforms jammed. Everybody travels third class in Switzerland, and on a big day like Christmas, the third class overflows, and the overflow is crowded into the sacred red plush 
first-class compartments. Shouting and cheering, the train crawled alongside the mountain, climbing up towards the top of the world. There was no big Christmas dinner at noon in Switzerland. Everybody was out in the mountain air with the lunch in the rucksack and the prospect of the dinner at night. When the train reached the highest point it made in the mountains, everybody piled out. The stacks of skis were unsorted from the baggage car and transferred to an open flat car hooked onto a jerky little train that ran straight up the side of the mountain on cog wheels. At the top, we could look over the whole world, white glistening in the powder snow and ranges of mountains stretching off in every direction. No matter how high you are in the mountains, there is always a slope going up, it seems. There were long strips of sealskin harnessed on our skis, running back from the tip to the base in a straight strip, with the grain of the hair pointing back, so that you pushed right ahead through the snow going uphill. If your skis had a tendency to slide back, the slipping movement would be checked by the sealskin hairs. They would slide smoothly forward, but hold fast at the end of each thrusting stride. Soon the three of us were high above the shoulder of the mountain that had seemed the top of the world. We kept going up in a single file, sliding smoothly up through the snow in a long upward zigzag. We passed through the last of the pines and we came out on a shelving plateau. Here came the first rundown, a half mile sweep ahead. At the brow, the skis seemed to drop out from under us, and in a hissing rush, we all three swooped down the slope like birds. On the other side of it was thrusting uphill, steady climbing again. The sun was hot, and the sweat poured off of us in the steady uphill drive. There is no place you get so tanned as in the mountains in winter, nor so hungry, nor so thirsty. Finally, we hit the lunching place, a snowed-under old log cattle barn where the peasants' cattle would shelter in the summer when this mountain was green with pasture. Everything seemed to drop off sheer below us. The air at that height, about 6,200 feet, is like wine. We put on our sweaters that had been in our rucksacks coming up, unpacked the lunch and the bottle of white wine, and we lay back on our rucksacks and soaked in the sun. Coming up, we had been wearing sunglasses against the glare of the snowfields, and now we took off the amber-shaded goggles, and we looked out on a bright new world. I'm really too hot, Hadley said. Her face had burned coming up, even through the last crop of freckles and tan. You ought to use lamp black on your face, Chink suggested. There is no record of any woman that has ever yet been willing to use that famous mountaineer-specific against no blindness and sunburn. It was no time after lunch at all when the heat had gone out of the sun and it was time to start down. We took off the seal skins and waxed our skis. Then, in one long, dropping, swooping, heart-plucking rush, we were off. A seven-mile run down and no sensation in the world that can compare with it. You do not make the seven miles in one run. You go as fast as you believe possible. Then you go a good deal faster. Then you give up all hope. Then you don't know what happened. 
But the earth came up and over and over, and suddenly you sat up and untangled yourself from your skis and looked around. Usually all three had spilled together. Sometimes there was no one in sight. But there is no place to go except down, down in a rushing, swooping, flying, plunging rush of fast ash blades through a powdered snow. Finally, in a rush, we came out onto the road on the shoulder of the mountain where the cogwheel railway had stopped coming up. Now, we were all a shooting stream of skiers. All the Swiss were coming down, too, shooting along the road in a seemingly endless stream. It was too steep and slippery to stop. There was nothing to do but plunge along down the road as helpless as though you were in a mill race. So we went down. Hadley was way ahead somewhere. We could see her blue beret occasionally before it got dark. Down, down, down the road we went, in the dusk, past chalets that were a burst of lights and Christmas merriment in the dark. Then the long line of skiers shot into the black woods, swung to one side to avoid a team and sledge coming up the road, past more chalets, their windows alight with the candles from Christmas trees. As we dropped past a chalet watching nothing but the icy road and the man ahead, we heard a shout from the lighted doorway. Captain, Captain, stop here. It was the German-Swiss landlord of our chalet. We were running past it in the dark. Ahead of us, spilled at the turn, we found Hadley, and we stopped in a sliding slither, knocked loose our skis, and the three of us hiked up the hill toward the lights of the chalet. The lights looked very cheerful against the dark pines of the hill. And inside was a big Christmas tree, a real Christmas turkey dinner, the table shiny with silver, the glasses tall and thin-stemmed, the bottles narrow-necked, the turkey large and brown and beautiful, the side dishes all present, and Ida serving in a new crisp apron. It was a kind of Christmas you could only get at the top of the world. <laughs>